How many of you watch the Sunday morning comedy hour on television? How many of you ever heard of John Ankerberg? John Ankerberg, you have? Well, I had never heard of him before a few weeks ago, and I got a telephone call from his producer-director, and they wanted me to come on the John Ankerberg show as a guest, and they wanted me to be seated opposite a guy named William Martin, who I think used to write anti-Armstrongism quote-unquote articles for Atlantic Monthly and Esquire and other books and journals, and has written a rather well-published book, well-known book called Kingdom of the Cults, in which I think the worldwide church and my father and I guess I occupy a rather prominent place. Uh, Dr. William Martin, I believe, teaches at a theological seminary or a university down in the Houston area, and I remember back in about 1978 that he had contacted me on the telephone in our little office over on the South Loop. Well, the format was to be a debate, and they wanted a live studio audience of approximately 100 people, and I was to be seated on one side and Dr. Martin on the other, and then we were to argue and to debate various doctrinal premises of the Church of God and what Dr. Martin had to say about it. Well, of course, I refused because of not only the fact that debates never accomplish anything, but also because theologically, as I told the producer-director, I am commanded in the Bible neither to receive them that bring any other gospel nor to bid them Godspeed. I know what I know. I have proved it, reproved it, and can prove it again, and I will never debate it, explain it, expound it, answer for it, give an answer for the faith that is in me, sure, of course, but debate, no, I won't do that. So we talked back and forth a little while, and he was quite persistent. He wanted to call back. He wanted to write a letter, which he did. A couple of weeks of negotiation went by, and finally they said, well, John Ankerberg has said that if you will come on the program, there will be no debate, and he will merely be the moderator, and he will ask you questions about the gospel, and we will keep it to the gospel. Fine, you know, that's, that's great. I'll do that. So they paid my airfare over and my hotel bill, and off I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee. On the evening, and it was an evening taping that lasted about three and one half hours, so I want to give you a little bit of a picture of the way this was because it was really quite interesting. It reinforced a lot of concepts in my mind that I've had for a number of years concerning the delusions, the deceptions in people's minds, religious hobbyists, and how many people there are who really just dive over into a kind of a bottomless pit called religion and never do emerge again and just apparently love it, you know, just do backstrokes through it all their lives, just wander from one religion to another, like the Areopagites who love to see and to hear some new thing and just keep on talking in esoterica and mystery and whatnot, and just revel in religion. Now, I'm not that kind of a guy. I've got to tell you from the word go, I really am not a, quote, religious person. You don't know that, do you? But it is true. I mean, basically, as a person, you take the word religious in the way you think it may apply to this world and its churches and its religions, and I'm not that kind of a person. I have my own deepest beliefs and convictions. I have knowledge and information that has been given to me of God. I believe Almighty God has converted my mind and given me His Holy Spirit but the word religion and religious, as it is applied in this world, doesn't really apply to me, at least if you're going to apply it to all these other folks 
and then try to apply it to me, I don't think we really fit in the same mold. They have a difficult time trying to find just a nice little niche into which they want to place me when they puzzle over what I say on my own television program. It was a large, big brick building, probably a refurbished warehouse. Uh, there was a little raised dais or platform, probably two and a half or three feet high in one corner. And sitting in the middle of this in blazing lights was one leather swivel chair. I looked around and said, well, where's the chair for the moderator? Well, he's back there. Seated in the studio in dead silence were about 100 people who had seen the ads in the newspapers and had had to obtain tickets to come, though it was free. They were staring fixedly at me as I took my seat in the leather chair. The hot, bright lights about this big around, you know, the Klieg lights, were blazing from all angles, but I'm used to that. Way back at the rear, standing in a little black podium, was the moderator, a youngish, blonde-haired fellow that I'd never laid eyes on except just briefly to greet him at the back door as I came in. So they wind down, 10, 9, 8, sounded like, you know, Cape Kennedy about the missiles about to blast off, and... And finally, and everybody's getting all uptight, and I said, relax, everybody, and this and that. I'm trying to quip, make a little joke or two to relax all the audience because they look pretty scared. And we're on the air. Well, John Ankerberg begins by asking me about the gospel. The dissertation on the gospel lasted probably 30 seconds, and we were off on the Trinity, and that lasted quite a while, and we were off on to the divinity or the deity or the manhood of Jesus Christ, and that lasted a little while, and we were off on to the immortality of the soul, and from there we went into the idea of an ever-burning hellfire. And I really became more and more amazed as I heard a graduate of one of America's seminaries ordained, apparently, in the past, I found this out later, as a Baptist minister, debunking the necessity of water baptism, clinging ferociously and tenaciously to the concept of the Trinity, expounding no obedience and no law, not really sure whether Christ was human or superman or superhuman, didn't really know who and what Jesus was, and as a matter of fact, I think I just about got myself in trouble a few times on that program because a few things I said brought an audible gasp from the audience and the moderator. For example, on one occasion, I was being asked by a man from the audience who was a Jew, but apparently a converted or a Christian. I won't use the word converted except perhaps as he might apply it. A converted or a Christian Jew. He wanted to know whether the members of the Jewish race were all going to have another chance. I said, they never had a first chance. He said, nonsense. They've been hearing about Jesus Christ for generations. I said, no, they haven't. Not the Jesus Christ that I know. The audience said, <gasps> you know. And uh, uh, I really had left them at that point, and I was completely in a different world, I guess, than some of these people. Well, I pondered that a good bit since it became the reason for my personal and the latest issue of the International News, and also the part of an article, the headline of an article, on Can God Die? In one sense, I don't think I would ever want to do that again. It was about three and one-half hours. I felt like an insect pinned to a board under close scrutiny. But on the other hand, you know, we had a couple of times to stand up and stretch and get a glass of water, and uh, there was... A repartee, a little give and take from the audience, but they tell me if they are accurate that the Nielsen ratings claim that that show that I'd never heard of before in my life on both the CBN and the PTL network uh, is viewed by somewhere between 1.8 and 2 million people. 
and I guess I'll be on about three weeks running. It did degenerate, my apologies to God and the church, into a debate. Uh, I didn't want it to be a debate, but I found that I had to defend the beliefs that I hold to be true. I did love the time when he said we got it. We only have ten seconds to answer the question, and I asked him just before we closed, what was on the subject of ever burning hell, whether he believed little innocent Chinese girls were going to go to hell and burn forever because a missionary had a flat tire. And we left right at that point, so that was the end of one program. But anyway, we had a lot of fun with it, and a few times I was able to tell the young man interviewing me that I wasn't really sure what he was because it was hard to define what his religious beliefs stood for. He sounded like a kind of a mishmash of a dozen of them. I think basically what he was was an antagonist. What he was was an individual who was doggedly determined he was going to disagree with me no matter what I said in order to make the program lively. And he did manage to do so, I think basically without delving into personalities. And I was glad that he did that. Uh, there was never a single question about what happened between you and your father. There was not one question about the past or anything like that. It was all on doctrine. But I was once again really amazed at the incredible deception, the incredible amount of confusion that exists in people's minds. I would have been better served if I had been given a baseball bat and been stood opposite the largest bank building in downtown Chattanooga, and someone said, wreck that building. I want you to destroy that building. You've got ten minutes to do so with this baseball bat. I would have had just about as much opportunity to reduce a 14-story bank building made out of solid steel and granite to a pile of rubble in 10 minutes with a baseball bat as I had a chance of unlocking the mind of that young man or the minds of those people in his audience. I have pondered for many years about the human mind, how the human mind can be like the most perfectly machined, flawless, smooth, German-made ball bearing when it comes down to its rigidity, its absolute uh, tempered hardness, its steel-like quality of resistance to any kind of denting or malformation or puncturing or deformation of any kind. And once again, I come to the conclusion that it does take a miracle to open a human mind, and that knowledge and information concerning the most essential, the fundamental truths of God, who and what is God? How fundamental can that be? I mean, is there a God? What kind of a God is he? Is he a triune God? Are there 160 of them, or three, or two, or one, or some that say there's only Jesus, the Jesus-only theory, the bulk of all religions of the Protestant religion, at least, and Catholicism claim a triumvirate, or three in one, and I'll come to that a little bit later. But, you know, I have said out of pulpits over the years that evolution is not the product of stupid or ignorant minds. Do you believe Confucianism from the inscrutable and the very superbly intelligent Chinese is the result of stupidity, of darkened, demented, diseased, ignorant minds? Would you say that Shintoism in Japan, if you were to be able to read Japanese, which has got to be one of the toughest languages for Americans to learn, 
and read classical Japanese and pour into the tens of thousands of pages of all of the mysteries and the secrets of Shintoism, which is a kind of a classical high-caste Buddhism of Japan, do you think that's the product of stupidity? Is Catholicism the product of dumb, darkened, stupid minds? I have the entire Catholic encyclopedia at home. It fills much of one bookcase, volume after volume, that thick, historical, eschatological, exegetical, homiletical, on and on and on. I mean, every saint in the history of them, what they did, the history, from their point of view, of the development and the various metamorphoses through which the Catholic Church underwent, their Petrine theory defended, the Sunday doctrine defended, the Trinity defended, uh, the fact that there has to be a limbo defended very, very cogently, very brilliantly, which makes a lot more sense once you are given the doctrine of the immortality of the soul to believe in a limbo, which solves the question, do Chinese babies go to an ever-burning hellfire because a missionary had a flat tire when you stop to think about it, so that the Catholic doctrine makes far more sense sense given the immortality of the soul than does the Protestant doctrine. No, none of these great religions, nor the great political systems, including Marxist-Leninist communism, are the products of stupid minds. You know, there's something I had to give this young man. He's an intelligent young man, well-read, well-versed in the Bible. He could pull out conjunctions prepositions and tell me what they meant. How interesting it was when we got into the subject of the Trinity that he also knew the Hebrew, the Greek word ekinos, as do I, and that it can mean it or they or that one or that thing or he, and when Jesus said, the other comforter will come. 14th and 17th chapters of John and that portion of the real Lord's Prayer and his final instructions to the disciple that unless he went away, the other comforter would not come and called him plainly, He. And when He is come, He will lead you into all truth. Well, they asked me about the Trinity. So I began in the book of Genesis with the Hebrew word Elohim that means more than one, that is a plural word. God said, let us I talked about the fact that we have two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, two hands, two legs, two arms, that there are two sexes, two opposite poles in the magnetic north and south, that there are the first man and the second man Adam, the new and the old covenant, that there are uh, various uh, positrons and neutrons, or electrons rather, protons, photons, and, and protons and neutrons, and the various opposites in electricity, that we have two poles in a battery. I showed duality throughout the entire system of the physical creation as well as two sexes and reproduction. And that the only two beings you see with actual personality as if sitting on a throne, you never hear the Holy Spirit sitting on a throne, are God the Father and Christ the Son. I then proceeded to some of the scriptures and showed them that First John 5.7, read Bollinger's Companion Bible, the appendix on that subject was not even discovered except in the margin, as a marginal note, in some Latin texts after the inventing of printing. If you remember that scripture, it is the one which talks about there are three in heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three agree in one, when actually that is not even in the Bible. It talks about the water, and I forget, but it talks about the spirit and the water and the blood, I believe. 
And because the ancient Latin copyist in the 16th century, mind you, thought, being a Catholic, that this might be a good place to insert a little marginal notation in one of the Catholic Latin texts, which is found nowhere in the original Greek, he placed that in there, and it's been in the King James and the Ransdowe Bible ever since. But any Bible scholar knows it doesn't belong there. I then saved for the last, the very best, but he came back and just insisted on the Trinity. And a couple of people in the audience insisted on the Trinity. Finally, I was just about at my wit's end. I said, look, we can sit here for a month if you'd like, unless you want to go on to the next question. And you will never convince me that God is a Trinity. Now, if you want to get off that subject, get on to the next one, so on, we can go on. Otherwise, we're just wasting time. But it was unbelievable how tenaciously they would cling to a preposition or a conjunction or some very vague scripture in Colossians 1. I ask him point blank. You say God the Father is a person. Is that right? That's right. He has a shape that's revealed in the Bible. Is that correct? That's correct. He sits on a throne. He's revealed in the Bible as having a face. His arm is not shortened that it cannot help us. His right hand is reached toward us. It talks about his countenance. It talks about his body. He is given bodily parts. Christ is called the very stamped impress or the image of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God the Father, in your mind, is an individual, if composed of spirit, sitting on a throne, one person. Is that right? That's right. Christ is an individual, obviously came to the earth, crucified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, sits on his throne, and is a separate person. You're telling me that the Holy Spirit has equal form and shape, is one of three individuals, but the three in some mysterious way are one, meaning together, but there are three persons. Is that right? Oh, that's right. What about Luke, the first chapter? The Virgin Mary was found with child of or by the Holy Spirit. Please tell me, who was the father of Jesus? Now we see here in Colossians 1 and so on, I could not, I would not have been able with my baseball bat, forget the bank, I would not have been able with my baseball bat to have forced that man to answer that question. I could drag these people to the watering trough, and there was the inescapable ultimate conclusion. All of the logical, rational, absolute, factual data lay behind. We had stepped across them one by one. We had inevitably arrived to the only inescapable conclusion, the fact of what I was telling him. They wouldn't drink. The water trough was right there, but they wouldn't drink. Because, you see... I have now begun to realize even more than ever before that once you accept a certain philosophical, political, religious, spiritual, or doctrinal position, you may even be dealing with a simple little thing about your likes and dislikes and your appetites. You may not like milk. Benny doesn't like chicken. He hates him because he grew up as a boy on a chicken farm and he saw what chickens did to each other and perhaps to him. Maybe a big chicken chased him at one time when he was a boy. But we will go into a restaurant and they'll have the most, you know, delicious chicken dishes. Benny will not even touch it. He won't touch chicken. Chicken to him is like pork to a Jew. He just won't touch it. We may even be dealing with appetite. But you know, those things become yours they become a part of you. They become a part of your empirical self. 
And it is all the more incredible to me, as I think now, of the almost mental wrestling match we underwent over there, of how things do become an idea baby, or we talk about a brainchild, a possession, all wrapped up in and tied up in and perhaps even identified with in some way inextricably interwoven with so it becomes a part of ego. It is almost as if saying before you're willing to let go of your brainchild, something you have become convinced of, something in which you really believe, you'd be just as willing to have a finger amputated. You would be equally as willing to have your ear cut off or one foot sliced from your body as you would to give up a position you hold mentally or spiritually. And I am more convinced of that than ever before. Well, it is no wonder the Bible says what it does about deception. I want to turn to a couple of quick scriptures on that, just referred to them in passing. Revelation 12:9, which says, The dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Now, anybody reading that is going to say, I'm the exception, right? I don't care if it's a Catholic over in, uh, in Rome reads Revelation 12.9, that's right, the whole darkened, demented communist world, the world of Protestantism, the world of all the Quakers, and the world of the Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Seventh-day Sabbatarians, they're all deceived, poor souls, but we, the universal church, we know the truth. A Baptist in the seminary reads that scripture. That's right, they're all deceived. Catholics and Methodists and Lutherans, Episcopalians, Seventh-day Adventists, all are deceived except us Baptists. Now, if a Confucianist, a Taoist, or a perhaps priest in uh, the Dalai Lama religion of Tibet were reading a similar scripture, he would say, praise the Lord, they're all deceived but me. I worship the Dalai Lama. So be careful of that, because when you read that, remember, you might be making that your idea, baby, and that might become your premise, and you might say, yes, that's true, others are deceived, but I'm not. Now, I was deceived about a lot of things. I was deceived by some of the early teachers who themselves were deceived in Ambassador College. I wrote in my Bible things which soaked through three pages in ink which is still there, staining the pages. For example, on the day on which Pentecost ought to be observed, that the word over in Leviticus 23, which is Sabbaths, meant weeks. So there could be any series of weeks beginning with any day, when in fact it means nothing of the sort, but is the very same word used for the weekly Sabbath and can only mean Sabbath to Sabbath. But because a teacher in whom I had confidence in the womb in which I found myself encased and enclosed, the man to whom I looked as the great exalted teacher whose intellect was told to me out of the pulpit at least a hundred times, wasn't he a straight-A student? In high school, a straight-A student in college, a walking encyclopedia, one of the most intelligent men that had ever been the gift to the world, off his dad's chicken farm at some occasion when they let him go. Uh, never mind the fact that socially the poor man might have been a wipeout, but I mean intellectually there was no quest questioning the man's mind. So when he said it, oh, it is, huh? I didn't have to go running the exhaustive concordance. And you know, that's not really a heavy bit of research there. A lot of people will demean 
the Youngs or the Strongs' exhaustive concordance of saying that's all you can do. Uh, you're not much of a researcher. But I didn't even bother with that. I was a kid in college. I was sitting there taking notes. He said it meant weeks. I said it meant weeks. I put it in my Bible and stood up and preached it for the better part of 20 years till I found out I was wrong. In World War II, I was told, and some of you gray-headed people who are my age were probably also told, that there is no word for love in the Japanese language. And I believed that. There are actually more than five, but I didn't know that. I'm interested in what the British believed about Singapore. You know, belief is a strange thing. Even Churchill himself believed that Singapore was a fortress, and it became known in British publications, newspapers, etc., as Fortress Singapore. I remember so well as a boy being told about the 18.2-inch naval cannon fixed to fire out toward the Straits of Malacca to defend Singapore at the southern tip of a little island connected by a causeway on the end of the Malaysian Peninsula overlooking the Straits of Malacca. The British fortress of that part of the world was impregnable. Churchill, as a gesture, sent, if you remember, two of the greatest and the newest, one of which was brand newly launched, British battleships. This was just at or about the time of November or early December, probably at about the time or a few days or a week or two, I forget now, before Pearl Harbor, that he sent those two British battleships down to Singapore to awe the Japanese. Well, they believed that those hundreds of miles of Malay jungle to their north would certainly cause the Japanese to think twice about ever invading from the land, and they were impregnable from the sea. But it was all a, f a sham. There was no fortress. There were the naval guns, but there was no wall to protect them from the Malay Peninsula. They said that that place could be held without any outside help at all for at least three years. It fell in exactly 70 days. The Japanese came ashore in several places on the Malay Peninsula. Both the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, the two modern fast battleships without air cover, were bombed and sunk by what they called rice paper and bamboo aircraft. But at that time, the British, sitting in our golf club, and uh, the Raffles, I think it was called, hotel, with their gin and tonics and their pith helmets and all of that, Oh, jolly good show, old boy, and all that sort of rocks, you know. Uh, the Japanese are not very much. They don't have very good aircraft. Oh, what were those? Those are Brewster Buffaloes. Rather good airplane, you know. Much better than anything they've got. Well, in a matter of a few weeks, here came the Japanese swarming ashore with their bicycles in three pieces on their back, put them together, and pedaled down the Malay Peninsula. And 70 days later, Singapore fell. You know how it fell? It fell outnumbering the Japanese attackers five to one. It fell with reserves of months of food, medical supplies, ammunition, and guns. It fell to the final barrage by the attacking Japanese general of every last bit of artillery and mortar ammunition he possessed. It fell at the last moment of supreme exhaustion by the Japanese, which was in fact exactly what British planners had early expected meaning that the torturous hundreds of miles across the Malay Peninsula with its swamps and endemic diseases in its forests and boa constrictors and leeches and tarantulas and whatnot would so sap the strength of an advancing enemy they couldn't mount an attack against Fortress Singapore itself. In fact, the Japanese were exhausted. They were virtually out of it. But because the British believed they were stronger, five to one walked out and surrendered 
and Singapore fell to an exhausted, depleted, inferior force out of ammunition who peddled into the gates of Singapore on their little bicycles. It's merely a case in point about how important it is and the actions we will take and the things we will do and the decisions we will make based upon what we think up here. Those who follow Jim Jones to the bubbling vat at his feet as he extemporized on the microphone about all those who were persecuting him believed in their minds in Jim Jones. They could see people reeling in agony with blood gushing from their nose, falling on the ground, dying in excruciating pain. But they jostled one another to get forward to take their turn because something they believed in their minds. Don't ever think that when someone is deceived, that person is ignorant, that person is inferior, or that person is in some way to be put down or to be pitied or to be abhorred or hated. That person may be a superbly intelligent human being, far more intelligent perhaps than you, but that person just may be deceived. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it talks about the God of this world. If our gospel be hidden, or that is secret or veiled, it says in verse 3, it is hidden to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Now, when you're blind, you can't see. Remember what Jesus said, in them is fulfilled the saying of Isaiah, that seeing they see not. You know, it's like the other day, I saw a blind man, one of the famous uh, blind musicians, Western singer, interviewed on Good Morning America, and when he shook hands with David, he said, good to see you. And I've noticed a lot of blind people do that. Good to see you again. Like Tom Sullivan that I sang with and met and came to know very personally up at the summer camp in Orr. He would talk about, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Well, he couldn't see at all. And Jesus said of the Pharisees, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall in the ditch. So when a blind man really says, I see, it is a metaphorical form of speech. It's a simile or an analogy. It isn't the truth, is it? He doesn't see. We use that very same expression to mean, I understand, or, oh, I get it. In casual conversation, we're talking, oh, I see. Or someone says, well, I don't see it that way, meaning I don't comprehend it. I don't believe it. I don't understand it the same way you're telling it to me. He is saying here that Satan who deceives all the world, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, meaning good news, and I told them in the program that I believe the word gospel should be relegated to an archaic dictionary placed in a museum, and there displayed as a word which might have some meaning in modern English or American vernacular, but has been retired from the English language, because it isn't modern English at all. But 1611 King James English, if we always said the glorious good news announcement of Jesus Christ, we would understand so much more than the word gospel, which sort of puts it in religiosity and veils the meaning of it even to many millions of American people. The glorious good news announcement of Christ, who is the image of God, lest it should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. 
There are so many other scriptures about deception. I won't read them all, but you can look at 2 Corinthians 11:13, how Satan has ministers, and if his, Satan himself is changed or transformed into an angel of light, is it any great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness? And in Matthew 24, verse 11, and again in verse 24, the deception would be so great that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. About a year and a half or so ago, when we were meeting in a little church across town, some few of you may have been there, I preached a sermon on, I believe, seven or ten or whatever points on how not to be deceived. One of those points was, please be willing to believe you like to be stroked. You like to be stroked. I have seen people who are very easily flattered. Now, cats are different from dogs. We've got a dog that, is, that thinks that she is a cat, I think, because when she gets on your lap, she sprawls and kind of slithers. It's just like suddenly everything is uh, gelatinous or glutinous or whatever, but there's no bone. She just kind of uh, flops there, will lie on her back and look at you like that, you know, upside down, instead of turning her head around, and uh, wants to be cuddled and loved. She's a little poodle. Cats like to just kind of lie on the master, and when you stroke them, they purr. They love to be stroked, and the claws go like that. And ladies, you know, with nylons or whatever, don't like cats to do that because they will sort of gather your clothes up while you're stroking them. They just love to be stroked. Have you ever seen human beings who will go to incredible lengths? They will spend incredible amounts of money. They will go to great lengths to be stroked by other human beings, to be told that they're marvelous and that they're wonderful that they are intelligent or charming or engaging or generous or whatever. And there are many people who are quite strokeable. So if your ego is such that you like to be told you are intelligent, that you are sagacious and perspicacious and all of those wonderful words that connote a great deal of mental capacity, beware because it could be a part of your own idea baby or your brainchild which becomes quite confused with your ego and once you think you have studied or you have learned something, it may become just about as important to you and just about as hard to let go as your little finger or your big toe. And the Bible tells me that no man has ever yet hated his own flesh. We rather love our flesh. We provide for ourselves. We don't really want to see even the most unessential little digit, or so we think it is, depart from us in a hurry. We like to hang on to it as long as we can. That's why we leap back when the car door slams or when we pinch it or we cut it or whatever. I have found that trying to unlock a human mind and to insert a little bit of the truth of God is about as difficult as asking someone, stretch out your finger and let me amputate it. It does take a divine miracle. And if I ever knew before, which I did, and refused to debate and yet found myself drawn unwillingly into a debate format, that you never accomplish anything in a debate. I know it now beyond every shadow of a doubt. Because, you see, you are almost like two antagonists in warfare. It's attack, defend, attack, defend. There is never any question of surrender. And if you are actually in a mutual truth-seeking, then what do you have? What is the attitude we're dealing with here? It's a far different one than attack the other fellow's idea and defend your own at all costs. For example, 
on the subject of the Trinity and who and what is Jesus Christ, and I want to get into that right quickly because I believe there is something there that many of us have perhaps not even seen. What should our approach be? Here we are, like a flea or a gnat, a little temporal life, trotting about on this earth for a short period of time. Now we're on this side of the street, but inevitably we'll check in over there. If not there, another like it. Across the street are our silent neighbors, in case you haven't noticed. And it is going to happen to us someday. Here we are, wondering, what is this life all about? Why am I trotting about on this earth? Why the heartache and the anxiety and the fear and the concern? Why the struggle to earn a living? All the concerns of youngsters as we grow up, the posturing, the pretense, the games we play as young teenagers, and then as we're 30 and 40 looking back, wishing we had known infinitely more than we did then, but couldn't believe when our parents told us we didn't know that much, that they were really correct and we didn't. We knew better then than they did, and we were more intelligent than they were. And it takes us another 20 years to discover that perhaps now that we are also parents dealing with our own children at that age, well, what do you know? They knew what they were talking about after all. We go through this life, and like the old barroom sign said years ago in German, wie ist du so old und du late schmart? We look around, and all of a sudden, much of our life is gone. We really haven't learned all that much. There's a great deal we pass right on by and that we don't know. But when we are dealing with the most fundamental question of human survival, what is life all about, who and what is God, and who and what are we, what should be our approach? Now try to understand where I'm going what I'm trying to tell you here. The approach I saw over there was the approach of vanity, the approach of intellect, the approach of possessiveness and of protection and defense of one's ideas. It was the approach of hostility and resentment. It was like two dualists seeking to cut or slash or penetrate the other person's defenses. What a different approach that would be from a starving man on his knees begging someone for a handout of food, or a thirsty man dying of thirst in a proverbial desert begging someone for a cold drink of water. What a different approach. And as I think about the approach that I saw in the minds and the hearts of some of those people about the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what kind of a human being he was, was he human or was he God, did he die and was he all the way dead, I had to ponder, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the Creator God who made the entirety of the universe, made the sun, put it up there, set it in motion, who governs and rules the entirety of all creation, who designed and made with his brilliant mind every creature, every animal, every form of life, of life, who understands that we only peck at the corners of things such as microbiology or mineralogy and etc. He knows every form and shape of every creature in the sea, the land, and in the air. And we're dealing with the very source of life and the individual who can impart to us eternal life with him as a member of his family. And instead of being open-minded, instead of being childlike, instead of being thirsty, instead of being hungry, we are filled, we are pompous. We are antagonistic. We are vain. We are proud. We are hostile. 
don't try to penetrate my mind with your ideas because what I know is superior to what you know. And I had to just think of what we're dealing with here. The human mind that possesses its own idea baby, its own brain child, and possesses it in the same way we possess our own bodies and is as unwilling to open a part of that mind to admit a new little piece or a new little part of the truth as we are literally to stick out our finger and say, sever it from me, I need it no more. Let me take you through what happened when we came to the study or the question of who and what is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's go to John, the first chapter. Deception is complete. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that. Deception is complete. I did not try to put anybody down. I didn't try to posture and say, you don't realize who you're talking to, young man, or any of that kind of garbage, because that's just more of the same kind of vanity in which many people do indulge when they try to dodge an issue at hand. I really honestly and sincerely tried to do my best to answer the questions as they came. Unfortunately, it's his program, and unfortunately it was pre-taped, and even more unfortunately, many of the repartees or some of the little answers that I might have given will no doubt be edited from the tape when it is shown on the air. I'm not quite sure exactly when it will be shown. I'm not sure that I want to bother to see it, but it will be on in due time on those two networks, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe six or eight weeks from now, I'm not sure. In John, the first chapter, and we did deal with this a good bit, although he and the audience thought of Jesus Christ in a way and and in a form that I was not really that familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, capital letter W. Even the Greek translators knew that that should be capitalized because it is the Greek word L-O-G-O-S, logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, in the beginning, that is an esoteric word, isn't it? That bangs against eternity. That stops right against a solid wall of our lack of ability to understand. When we start talking, as a couple of them wanted to, about whether or not Christ had existed from forever, from eternity with the Father, I said, oh yes, he was there from the beginning. I didn't know if that meant that some thought that Christ was created. I'm given to understand that the Jehovah's Witnesses do that they believe that Christ was a created being and was created by the Father. And that's rather difficult for me to comprehend that anyone could believe that because it seems to be virtually blasphemous. But this says he was from or in the beginning with God. Now, the Greek word is roughly the equivalent of Elohim. And Adonai, or the various other Greek words such as Theus and so on that mean God, would include the family name of God in the Hebrew more than one. All things were made by him. Just for my information, I picked up my Time Life series on the creation, and I read the article about the entire uh, hydrogen-helium process that takes so many millions of years, of course, but because the sun is so huge, it happens seemingly rapidly and continually, and how the sun operates, because I had not read that for some years, and it just made me realize once again, as I read even what science thinks they know, and the various Einstein theories about how the sun radiates its gamma rays out into the universe, and how the earth is heated in the entire solar system, and how one of the orange or the yellow dwarf stars operates, of the incredible mind of the great creator being who put it there, who started the process, and who sustains it. It is intricate beyond your belief to even begin to understand. 
I was even tempted to get a chart, two of the different charts, to show you how that entire process, because the sun, you know, is not solid, but gaseous. If it were solid, then it would not function the way it does. But enough of that. It's a phenomenal study, and you ought to read a complete article in a very, uh, you know, collegiate level textbook on astronomy about the sun someday, just to inform yourself. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made or created. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. Now he's dealing in metaphor, isn't he? He's talking about spiritual knowledge and understanding. And the darkness, meaning minds which have been deceived, minds which are closed, comprehends it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, capital letter L, again, a metaphor, talking about Jesus Christ as light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. Again, we're dealing with Christ. And the world, now in this case, even though it may be the Greek word, which does mean the orb on which we live, rather than aeon or age, was made by him, and the world knew him not. He made this earth, he made the entire solar system, he made the universe. And the world, and again a metaphor, meaning human beings on this earth, didn't know him. He came unto his own, specifically the Jewish race, and his own received him not. Now we come to one of the favorite texts of all Protestant Christianity, and certainly Dr. Billy Graham's favorite text. I've heard him quote it many, many times. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Because, you see, that is a scripture which simply focuses in very narrowly on your requirement to believe on his name. Believe on his name. You don't have to go on and quote all the other scriptures that God gives his Holy Spirit to those that obey him. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the example of the Apostle Paul, which he wanted to argue about in the program too, who, even though he had already received the Holy Spirit, was baptized. I found myself taken somewhat aback by a man who had been ordained as a Baptist minister, arguing from, but he was trying to state that it wasn't necessary to go be baptized. You could have this belief in your heart, and you could accept Christ, and Christ could give you the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, of course he can. And I said, I think there are notable exceptions. Paul was one, where Ananias came to him, and Paul received the Holy Spirit. Then why did Paul go ahead and go down and go through the process of baptism? And why does Romans, the sixth chapter, tell us we must be baptized? Well, he didn't really have an answer for that. But I didn't know what he was, what he was really trying to get across. But this is a favorite scripture because many people want to have a kind of a belief. I had a sad notification of a man who had been a minister in the parent church and then with us for a period of time who now allegedly believes, like a lot of uh, Church of Christ scientist people or others, that it's all a matter of your heart. Uh, if you believe it in your heart, so it's not required to observe the Sabbath. It's not required to obey God's law. There's nothing you must do as long as you believe it in your heart. Well, that's, that's all that is really required. So this individual now has just taken a whole massive ton of evidence out of the Bible, one scripture after another, first-person quotations from Christ, Peter, who said he set us an example that we should follow in his step, Jesus, who said, I have kept my Father's commandments. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. 
If we say we know him and keep not his commandments, we are liars and the truth is not in us. He takes this ton of evidence, throws it aside and goes along. I believe it's all in your heart. It's amazing how people can lose the truth once they have been informed of it. They can close their minds and shove the truth out of their minds, even though once it has come into their minds. Notice then which were born. The Greek word is gnau, and here, believe me, and you can look it up and prove it to yourself, should not be translated born, but begotten, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, referring again to that individual seated at the right hand of the Father, who was with the Father from the beginning, and who made all things, and made the worlds, and without him was not anything made that was made, was made flesh. I am dumbfounded to discover that many of the major religions of the world refuse to accept that simple statement. I didn't know that before. In a way, vaguely, I thought the Catholics didn't quite accept it, but I thought the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Episcopalians and most of the Protestants did, but they don't. It's like, now this is a totally earthy garden variety analogy. If I were to say, holding up a little carrot seed, if you plant carrots in a little kind of a white half-moon sliver like a part of a pared toenail, right? You ever seen a carrot seed? A little tiny white thing. I planted a lot of carrots. And I said, now, this used to be spirit, but it was made into a seed. And I could pass it around. Don't drop it. We'll never find it again on this carpet. But a little bitty, maybe on a little black slide paper underneath a piece of uh, tape or something, and you can look at it. That's a carrot seed. What is it? It's a carrot seed. Now, if you plant it in the ground, you water it in sunshine, and the inevitable, you know, natural process happens, we pick it out of the ground, and there it is. It's a carrot. Now, what do you got? A carrot. The seed was a little pattern, and that little pattern began to decay, and there was a little germ of life in there, and if we could have seen it microscopically, it would have looked like so much protoplasm flowing rapidly through a plastic tube, and it put out little bitty tentacles. Now, those tentacles are labeled. One of them says, get the iodine, get the iodine. Another one says, potassium, potassium, potassium. Another one says, iron, iron, iron. So if you hear all these at once, iron, potassium, iron. So they're, you know, they're flowing. And in this soil, no matter what kind of soil, each one of the little roots I like to think of as having, you know, a particular thing it's hungry for. And it's flowing into this carrot. And the carrot's gradually shaping. And little by little, the ground is kind of cracking. And then you till around it and this and that. Keep the bugs from getting at it. And finally, you come along and it says, ah! And the roots, you know, scream when you pull it out of the ground, and you have the carrot hanging there, dying in your hand. Lo and behold, it's giant carrot. Now what do you got? You got a carrot. And because those roots were programmed to pull out of that same sandbox, you could plant a beet there, but it'd be beet roots, and they'd be saying more iron, more iodine, you know, less potassium, and less all these other things, and they'd turn red instead of yellow, but it'd be the same soil, and this way you can prove that we do come out of the earth, and we are dirt, and so on. Now you got a carrot. Now, what can you do to that carrot? Well, you can slice it, cut it, dry it, pare it, you can grind it or grate it, you can take it and throw it away, and it's going to rot. A rabbit might get it if you don't first, or you can eat it. You can freeze it or you can cook it. But you can destroy it, can't you? Now that concept should be your everyday garden variety, but wait a minute, I said that we had a very special little carrot seed, didn't I? The carrot seed used to be electricity. It was power, it was energy, it was force, and it just kind of shuddered down and kind of sat there and quivered a couple of times and sat still, and all it was was a little carrot seed. And it got planted in the ground, 
and it became a carrot. Now, can you cook that carrot? Can you kill that carrot? Can you abuse that carrot? Can you cut it, grate it, stamp on it, or drive a truck over it? You sure can. Now, my Bible tells me to come to a very exalted and a very clear and yet a mysterious and a powerful spiritual concept that my Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the very Creator God who said, let there be light and put the sun up there, became flesh. Now, if you want to get clinical, what did he literally become? A human male sperm cell to beget life in the womb of a human female. And because God's power is without limit for those early days, weeks, and months of that little baby growing, it was just like by our garden variety analogy. The growth that the mother provided through the food that she ingested, which came out of the ground. Let me tell you, it is not blasphemous to agree that your Savior was human. I didn't know that people can't make that step in Protestant Christianity. I didn't realize that they tenaciously cling to a brainchild that somehow to them it is blasphemy to suggest that Christ was human. Did you know that? I didn't really know that to the same extent I know it now. They can't believe that he was changed in form as much as electricity or spirit might have become a carrot seed to become human. But you see, if Christ had not risked it all, then how do you come to understand the process of salvation? The most fundamental questions at stake of how can one human life be worth all these other human lives put together is wrapped up in that question. Unless the very divine creator God himself emptied himself, as it says in second chapter of Philippians, became of no report, actually came down to the most mundane position of a human living cell, many cells, but I mean a germ of life, and became flesh and was born of a human mother, and then, just like we are, from that point in time, although there is something beyond this I want to cover very quickly, the spirit in man, of course, there is a spiritual essence that is added to a human brain that gives us mind instead of mere brain, and where our, let's say, psyche, or our personality, or our volition, our will, our character dwells, and which is spirit in essence, but the Bible says, who knows whether the spirit of a beast goes back to the earth or down to the ground, or the spirit of a man goes back to God who gave it. And I don't know the answer to that any more than Solomon did, whether that spirit hovers right there and stays with the body, or whether it goes back to Almighty God. I also know that even though Jesus Christ became flesh, it says here he became flesh, he was made flesh and dwelt among us, that because the spirit that was in Christ that spirit that was either created at the time of conception, and don't ask me how to explain that any more than I can explain any more than you could with the charts and the graphs about the various stages of field development, the great miracle we take for granted of human reproduction and of human birth, which is an awesome miracle. I don't know when the spirit of man comes into the mind of man, whether it is there and at the moment of conception it occurs, or whether at partrition, or whether the first breath, or at some time in the womb, I don't know. I could never answer that question in a million years. I'd still be asking the same question. I wouldn't know the answer to it. I know the Bible says, because it does say in the book of Job, there is a spirit in man. 
It says in the book of Romans, the eighth chapter, that our spirit which is within us, it speaks about how the spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God, if you recall that scripture. And the Apostle Paul talks about with my spirit writing to the Corinthian church, though absent and so on. And so we know that there is something spiritual, and in that sense eternal. But what else do we know about it? We know, quote, the dead know not anything. In that day their very thoughts perish. There is no remembrance of them in the grave. Like sheep they are laid in their graves, and the earth, and it talks about other rather unpleasant things, feed upon them. Solomon said, I will wait in the grave until my change come. Thou wilt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy hands. It says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming, and not one second before. So what do we know about the dead in Christ? They have the spirit in man, and there is some spirit essence which is eternal in that sense, but are they conscious? No. Do they think? It says there is no praise of thee in the grave. It says they are utterly dead. It says Christ was resurrected from the dead, that he was dead, and he came from a group of people called collectively the dead. So they are unconscious, and there is no consciousness there. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And up until the time of the giving of the Holy Spirit, we read of in the second chapter of Acts, he was the only begotten of the Spirit of God, of course, this, in this case, from the womb, but he was also the only ever begotten in the human race from God the Father by a divine miracle. Now, if you want to understand a miracle, all you've got to do is go to the library and read a science book, as I said, about the sun, or any other star, or astronomy, or the digestive tract of a mosquito, as far as that's concerned, or try to understand how guppies reproduce. I mean, if you want to know about miracles, study any one of the physical sciences, from astronomy to microbiology or comparative anatomy or embryology, and you are beginning to deal with one great awesome miracle after another. I didn't really know that these people believe, basically, that Jesus Christ was like a superman and that he didn't really die. You would be amazed at the argument we got into over the following verse, and I could not get them to admit it meant what it said. I mean, I'd have done better with a baseball bat. I quoted this scripture of that guy, I don't know how many times on that program. I said, quoting from Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I said, not having a Bible there, I was just quoting from memory, that this is in a red-letter Bible in a first-person quotation from Jesus Christ. Not only could I cite the many, many other texts, like in the second, third, and fourth of the book of Acts, like 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died in the third verse, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, which I cited, but I cited this, I am the first and the last, verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. Now, I asked John Angerberg, do you believe that? Well, he's hemming and hawing and around, and well, I've been this and that. And I said, now, wait a minute. I said, if you don't believe that, you don't have a Savior. If you don't believe Jesus Christ died, if you think he was still alive, and John Ankerberg thinks that he was still alive, and so do many other people. Do you know what they think he was doing? They think he went to hell. They think that he was in hell, roaming around, looking at the flames, 
and saying to a lot of souls, the honky-tonkers of, you know, 1 B.C., you guys are getting it, and you deserve to get it, and I'm here to tell you, you're going to be here from now on, and I'm witnessing under these departed spirits in hell, and that is how they understand that scripture over in 1 Peter 2, and one little reference to it in the book of Jude, which I've explained time and time again, which, by the way, you ought to read the, one of the appendices of the Bullinger's Companion Bible, way toward the rear of it, the end of it, on the departed spirits or the spirits in Tartaru. It is the most brilliant and the best explanation outside of anything that we've uh, written ourselves in the church that I have ever seen on the subject. And, of course, Bullinger has no axe to grind one way or the other. He simply happens to be a biblical scholar, but it's very, very clear to him as well of the time setting that it was when the long-suffering of God waited, when the ark was preparing, that is, when eight souls or beings were saved and so on, that Jesus Christ witnessed to spirits, and spirits can never refer to man as he showed, but to spirits who had followed Satan in his rebellion. But believe it or not, these seminarians who come out of the seminaries and preach in the pulpits across this country do not believe this statement that Jesus was dead. They believe his body was dead, but they don't believe he was dead. The concept that I hit them with just about took their breath. But for three days and three nights, and oh, I'm thankful we didn't get into that, because the minute I mention that, we're off on another problem, aren't we? How long did he spend in the tomb, and when did he die, and was he really dead, and uh, when was he resurrected? we got another giant problem. We could have been there for two weeks. We really could have been there for two weeks and never missed a breath if we'd have had the time, because they didn't even scratch the surface of what we disagree on. But I couldn't get them to admit that Jesus plainly said, I died. I was dead. They insisted he was alive. That, that just boggled my mind. So they think his body died, but his soul was alive, and that he, with his conscious, intelligent mind, was down in hell preaching to some departed spirits. We didn't get into that part, but merely the fact that they would not agree that Christ died was quite instructive to me. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. What they couldn't accept was the way I put it to them. For three days and three nights, there was an empty throne in heaven above. There was no second member of the God family for 72 hours. He didn't exist. His spirit was indestructible, but it was absolutely unconscious. The character could not be destroyed. He tried to bring up to prove the immortality of the soul the following scripture. Let's turn to Matthew 10 and come to understand this as perhaps we haven't before. Many people read around or read over the scripture, a little afraid of it perhaps. It says very clearly what it does for a very great purpose. Because it does show in the word of God that we are not to have fear. It says, perfect love casts out fear. I don't believe in fear religion. When I saw the Mexican lady, as I've told years and years and years now, crawling for about five miles, leaving a lacerated bloody trail on the stones leading up to the Basilica of the Virgen de Guadalupe in Mexico City, and to light a candle to pray for her sick child, as I recall, the people who have devoted their lives waiting on an altar, who go through all the ceremonies and so on, as I see people who will scuttle about and be afraid to even have the normal joy of salvation, be afraid to be normal and joyful and with each other out of fear and terror and in the grips of tyranny and religion, 
I just bear down time and again on the fact that perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. That God has not given us the religion or the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. So Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here in verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body. That's a big order, isn't it? I'm not sure I'm there yet. Fear not them which kill the body. That means don't fear the firing squad. That meant to Christians at that time, don't fear the Romans. That meant don't fear a sword or a harquebusier or perhaps a bludgeon or a spear of some sort. Now it means a bullet or an electric chair or a garrot or a guillotine or whatever it may mean. Fear not them which kill the body. Greek word, soma. Matter of fact, there's a new magazine. I think it's a health magazine called Soma, S-O-M-A. It merely means the body. And are not able to kill the suke, P-S-U-C-H-E. Unfortunate rendering because of a pagan misunderstanding, soul. Nothing wrong with the word. The word soul in the English language means a being or a person and is absolutely transliterated from psyche. Now, your innermost psyche is your life. It's your mind. It's your personality. It is your conscious person. If you're not able to kill that personality, if a man can't put that to death, is not this telling us very clearly, forget for a moment the semantics. There is no such thing as, quote, an immortal soul in the way the worldly churches, the churches of this world, teach it. There isn't. But there is an immortal spirit. We're dealing merely in semantics. We do have something immortal in our minds. Unfortunately, they translate it soul, and unfortunately, let me say on behalf of the parent church, there has been altogether too much made of the doctrine of no immortal soul without immediately going on to explain, but there is something immortal in our minds which is a spirit and which is indestructible and which man cannot destroy. If that had been balanced over all of these years by teaching and preaching, yes, but there is a spirit in man, which was not discovered by the church until the late 60s or early 70s, I think, then we would not, I think, have antagonized so many people in seeming to destroy or to wipe out one of their most cherished doctrines, but without explaining to them what the scriptures like this merely mean. Now, what is the scripture telling you? It's telling me that there's something indestructible here that even though a man can shoot me, stab me, garrot me, or hang me, he can't destroy. What's it telling you? Something different from that? How would we have explained that in 1954, for pity's sake? I'm not sure that I remember how that was gotten around. I think it was simply ignored. I, I think the people just didn't bother with that particular text. Fear not them which kill the soma or the body, but are not able to kill the psyche, suke, or the life. That's got to mean something. Man, though he takes your fleshly temporal life, cannot destroy. It still remains. It is still there. But rather fear him, and that is not terror but awe, which is able to destroy. Now we see another part of the character or the nature of that spiritual essence. Is it eternal or immortal in the sense that it is indestructible? Answer from your own Bible. God is able to destroy it. Man can't, but God is. Therefore, it is a spiritual essence beyond the ability of man to alter 
or to chemically, physically, or in any other way destroy, but it is not indestructible. God is able to destroy it. Fear him which is able to destroy both life, that is, spirit, and body in Gehenna fire. Here were these people telling me about an ever-burning fire, about an immortal soul, about a triumvirate Godhead, about a Jesus who was not flesh but Superman, who didn't really die. I tell you, the darkness, the deception, the idea babies, the brain children, the ego, the vanity, all mixed in with a position which was as much political as it was spiritual in their minds, was an overwhelming and an educational experience to me. Intelligent, charming, engaging, honest, of course, all of those things. Deceived people can be the most wonderful people in the world. How well I know. I was a pretty nice guy back when I was all deceived like that. Just kidding, of course, throwing that in. But, you know, you don't ever want to make the mistake of thinking because you're taking issue with the truth. That is an error as versus the truth, or that you are talking about someone's approach or point of view spiritually that you're putting them down intellectually. And I was thankful. You will see if you happen to see the program. The guy was tough, yes. He kept boring in, yes. And there was some pretty stern language back and forth. But it never degenerated into personalities. It never became personal. It was always on a very gentlemanly level. He was good at that. And I'm thankful he was, because it would have been very much more unpleasant if he had not been. Three and a half hours with 100 people staring up your schnoz, uh, less than, you know, close enough to lace your shoes, uh, is uncomfortable enough without having the guy out here doing a cross-examination armed with a Smith & Wesson 38 or something. I was glad that he was unarmed, and otherwise it was, you know, been a very frightening thing. All right, anyway, I we went through every one of those subjects including the ever-burning hell theory and who and what was Jesus Christ and it just made me realize all the more what an absolutely incredible miracle it is to have one's mind open to the truth that it takes a miracle from God let's go to 2nd Timothy 1 9 right quickly and take a look at that 2nd Timothy 1 9 just before Hebrews and Titus it says, I'll read up to that, that we're not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, Paul wrote Timothy, his prisoner, but be you a partaker of the afflictions, the tough problems that are attendant upon the good news announcement according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to the kind of people we are, or what we did, or what we accomplished, in other words, to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, we had nothing to do with it. He looked down and said, I'm going to call him, and I'm going to call her, and I'm going to call the other guy. We didn't do anything to deserve it, which was given us in or through or by Christ before the world began. Because you see, there is a plan and a purpose and a program that has been in the minds of the deity or the God family from eternity. And so our calling even has a place or a part in that. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, I won't turn to it, it says, to make your calling and your election. Now that means selection, not voted into office, but your election, the fact that you're an elect person, sure. If you're called and you're chosen, there's nothing you can do about it. So why does it make you better than anybody else? 
If God comes along and says, I'll take him and take him and take him, you're drafted. So why are you better than somebody else? Why should the truth of God, which can be lodged in your mind by the Holy Spirit opening your mind, make you vain instead of humble? I marveled at the approach or the attitude. Here we were talking as if in, in anger almost, talking as if in a hostile adversary relationship about some of the most fundamental, important, profound questions in the universe. What is the God family like? And what are we human beings trotting around on the earth for? And what kind of a savior do we have? And did he really die for us? And if he did, what was that death like? And was he all the way dead? And will he forgive our sins? And we're, we're, we're not rejoicing in it. We're not saying, you know, praise God, isn't it marvelous that we know this truth? But we want to fight over it. I can't figure it out. I can't figure out why people want to fight about the most fundamental questions on the face of the earth. What in the world am I drawing breath for? Why am I walking around the earth? What's there to fight about that? How can you disagree? How can you argue instead of stand in awe, trembling like a little child or a starving or a thirsty man dying of thirst, saying, give me a drink or give me some of your food or, or please, I'm about to die, give me something to eat, and have that attitude or that approach instead of the approach of vanity. I'm going to conclude by going to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and remind us a little bit of that calling. Jesus Christ of Nazareth sent the Apostle Paul to preach the good news, not with wisdom, he said, because that would be like foolishness to them that are perishing. Verse 20, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer, translated debater, of this world? Where are the various intelligent debaters of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, that is, according to his divine providence and his great knowledge, by wisdom, the world, by wisdom, that is, the world by its intelligence, knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign. Well, you know, a lot of people do today, too. They want to see a miracle. A lot of people are mesmerized by healing or by a lot of emotion or charismatic religion or what have you. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. To many people, that's their bag or their thing. They like esoterica and mysteries and hidden secrets, and they like a very intelligent way of seeking after certain wise concepts. But we preach Christ pinned to an upright stake. That comes across me more deeply than ever before. It makes me realize that I'm sitting there and I'm the only person in that room that believed that Christ died. And the moderator and everybody else doesn't believe he died. It makes me realize, well, it's almost like I'm preaching to people whose minds are darkened and though they say the name of Christ and they walk around like they're supposed to be Christian, they don't know that their Savior died for them. That he, de he died, he was dead, he, he absolutely had no life in him for three days and three nights. Christ, the Greek word, is impaled or affixed to an upright pale. It is the word stauros or stauru in the Greek which means it translated a pale or a stake or a tree. Maybe not, not that important a point as to what was the implement of his death, but important in one way, if it, uh, if it does have pagan origins, and I think we want to know that. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness, put it in quotes, of God, because you see this is a metaphor again. God has no foolishness and he's merely giving us an analogy. Is wiser than men. And the weakness, again in quotes, of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling. Now again, remember what I said about see. Do you understand the way you were selected? It was like the selective service. Instead of being drafted to the army and getting your telegram, greetings from Uncle Sam, you, through a series of divine miracles, found yourself propelled along into knowledge and information and an opening of your mind to certain concepts and truths that you had never had before. You see your choosing or your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I don't know of a single prince or a princess in the church of God. But God has chosen the foolish things, it should be translated people, as some modern versions have it, of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak people of the world to confound the people who are mighty, and base people of the world, and things which are despised, has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that nobody should be vain about their brain children. Isn't that what it's saying? No flesh should glory. Because, you see, if salvation was the province of the wise, where would we be? I mean, just take a look at it. If salvation were the province of the intelligentsia, if you had to have 139 IQ and a college doctorate degree, where would the bulk of humanity be when it came to being saved? Why did Jesus Christ say, I thank thee, Father, you have revealed these things unto babes, and pick up a little child and hold him and say, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you humble yourself as this little child, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. You have to humble yourself because understanding the truth of God takes a miracle. It does not take a doctor's degree. It takes a miracle. That no flesh should glory or be proud or be vain of what they know in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, you see, if you have him living within you, you have wisdom. And righteousness, your righteousness, is as filthy rags, but his is perfect. And sanctification, that means a special calling and choosing from God, being set apart. And redemption, he bought you, look at the price he paid, he owns you, he buys you back or redeems you. That, according as it is written, he that wants to be vain... He that wants to talk about brain children or ego or idea babies or glory or exult or be proud, let him glory in the Lord, not in his own intellect. Well, that was quite an experience for me to undergo here a few days ago in Chattanooga. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it again. I would try to guide the conversation a little more closely to the subjects at hand and perhaps not let it stray as it tended to every now and then into more of an argument than a truth-seeking. But I am pleased in one way that uh, we will be seen at least by approximately two million people and hopefully they will at least a couple of times give our address. So we may get a few letters. Who knows? There are people out there who watch shows like that. I'm glad it depends on people like that instead of on me or those programs that fail. They wouldn't have an audience at all.